This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zuma Radio, AM 740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. Come on in, weary stranger. Hang your cloak on a peg, grab a stool, and come gather around the fire. There are stories to be told, and you are among friends. Hey, do you remember Nexus Magazine? Great alternative uh, news publication. Uh, The content, very similar to what we discuss on this program. Uh, Conspiracies, alternative archaeology, uh, alternative health, free energy, ufology, and so forth. Well, Nexus is back and uh, now available in Canada and the U.S., and the publisher, Marcus Allen, will be with me shortly to talk about the relaunch of the magazine, some of the stories in this month's issue, and to talk about his particular area of interest, which is the photographic evidence he says proves the Apollo 11 lunar landing was a hoax. That's Marcus Allen just moments away. Now, let me introduce the boys in the band, as always, on the Gibson Flying V guitar, my technical producer, Ian Robertson, on the Rickenbacker bass guitar, and occasionally the theremin, my story producer and occasional remote viewer, Albert Vinzel. Uh, A couple of programming notes. There is no Hangout on Air tonight, so again, we are not streaming live on YouTube tonight, but we will resume the HOA next week. And uh, next week, we'll also get back, finally... Uh, to our What's in the Box segment. I'm hoping by giving Albert a few weeks off, he'll be able to rededicate himself to the the protocols of remote viewing. He's been struggling with that of late, Uh, but I'm hoping 2017 uh, will be his year. Uh, The mighty Aphrodite has been texting me uh, with photos all night uh, from a a friend of ours in uh, southern Greece where they are experiencing record cold temperatures and snowfall. Again, southern Greece, they they rarely ever see snow there. Uh, and uh, uh, Katie, our friend, uh, sent us uh, some pictures from Kalamata. People woke up this morning with their cars covered in ice, and, and nobody knew what to do. They don't have ice scrapers in southern Greece, but luckily our friend Katie uh, came to visit us a few winters ago when we had that really bad ice storm, and she got to experience a real Canadian winter. We had a power outage and, and ice and uh, record cold, and she loved it. 
so now they're getting a little winter in Greece, and uh, Katie sprang into action and was showing everybody over there how to scrape ice. I love it. Uh, and here's another picture. They even have snow in Santorini. Uh, so much for global warming. Anyway, I'll, I'll get the mighty Aphrodite to tweet those images of winter in southern Greece uh, at Richard Serrett. All right, to our main entree. It will be 47 years ago this coming July. Two American astronauts, Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, landed and walked on the surface of the moon, heralded as one of the great achievements in, in uh, history. But does the photographic evidence of this achievement hold up to scrutiny? Marcus Allen says, no way. He's the publisher, distributor of Nexus magazine, hailed as the world's best-selling alternative news magazine, recently relaunched and now available in North America. Marcus Allen, how are you? I'm very well, thanks, Richard, and very very good to be on your show. Likewise, great, great to have you. And I know you're very fond of saying that there are two people in the world, those who read Nexus magazine and those who are about to. Uh, for, That's right. <laughs> for, for those who are about to, tell us what's been going on with Nexus, because it, I mean, it was dormant for a while and then you've relaunched it. Give us a little bit of the, the, a thumbnail sketch of the timeline of Nexus magazine. Okay. Um, well, Nexus magazine, it actually originates from Australia. Yes. And for many years it was sold in uh, in Canada and the United States, and in fact all around the world. I came across it about 20, over 20 years ago and thought, well, this is an interesting magazine. I would like to read it. But I found I couldn't buy it in the UK at all. So, to, long story short, went out to Australia, met the editor, Duncan Rhodes, and uh, said, I'd like to sell it in the UK. He said, go for it, lad. And for the last 22 years, that's what we've been doing over here in the UK. So you uh, so you'd be distributing it, but you're you're also publishing, correct? Yes, we 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 publish it, and distribute it, and sell it, and promote it, and basically introduce people to it. And now it has a truly worldwide audience. Oh, we do. Yes, in, in fact, for, for many years, Nexus was sold in the United States or, or in North America generally, in Canada as well. And for various reasons, that dropped out. And we, because we were doing very well with Nexus in the UK, we started exporting it into North America through distributors, um, sold through bookshops and major outlets throughout North America. And it was going so well that it became rather, uh, shall we say, expensive to ship several tons of magazines across the <laughs> across the Atlantic. So it was easier to print it in the in North America. It's now printed in the United States and distributed right across. It's been redesigned, but um, it, it looks a bit different. So if you're going out looking for the old-style Nexus, it's a bit different now, but it's still got the head, the, the, uh, the main masthead, Nexus magazine. And you'll find it uh, pretty well distributed across North America now. A lot of it, but it's, it's still got the same content. Sure, sure. You know, it, it's interesting... Uh, I've been I've been doing this radio program uh, or or various iterations of it for my gosh almost twenty years and uh, I know you've been involved with with Nexus uh, for a little longer than that but uh, you know you look back over the over the last year in particular and um, it I, I call it the year you should you know the year your paranoid friends turned out to be right. Uh, because so much of the, so many of the I'll things so many of the things that you write up about or, or that or published rather in in Nexus that we talk about on the radio are turning out to be self-evident right which is the third stage of of the truth 
First That's it's, right. First it's uh, ridiculed, then it's violently opposed, and now it's accepted as self-evident. Well, we're sort of at stage three in many of these areas. I'm just wondering what's happening as, we, as we've gone through the last couple of years. What's happening with your, with your, with your readers, readership and your subscription base? Do you find it's, it's becoming more and more popular? It, um, the thing we found mainly is that, that people who read Nexus do so for a considerably long period of time, and they become very familiar with it. And the amount of people who will come to us and say, wow, Nexus has really changed my life, is quite extraordinary. Mm. And the number of people who, who really do read the information because that's what Nexus is. It's a, it's a text magazine. It's not pictures. I mean, there are pictures in there, but they just illustrate an article. But the main strength of it is the information that's contained there. And you start from an article and you then, if you're interested, you'll research it yourself and you'll go into different areas and, and expand it from there. And that's what we find happens with many people, that they, they look upon Nexus as their starting point to developing what they want to find out about. Sounds like your readers and my listeners have a lot in common. There's probably a lot of crossover there. I think you'll find they do, because um, you'll find that, that many Nexus readers are very, very interested in a lot of the subjects which you've had guests on your show to talk about, that we talk about uh, in, in Nexus, or articles are published in Nexus, which, which seem to resonate with people. They say, yes, I, I wondered about that. And, and many people will say, it was only after reading Nexus I found that it wasn't just me. There were lots and lots of other people, and, and it's, it's good to be part of a community. All right, it, whether it's online or it's on magazine, it doesn't really matter, but it sort of helps that it means that you're not alone. There are other people who think the same way. There are other people who are interested in the same subjects, whether it's, you know... So, uh, whether it's the earlier civilizations that we hear about, whether it's ET or UFOs, whether it's part of the politics, whether it's the the way that the modern mainstream press deals with things, which is one of the articles in the current issue. Yes, the whole idea of, of fake news. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yeah, fake, fake news is now big news, as they say. But uh, Nexus has been aware of it, because one of the strap lines we had, which, which was um, reading between the lines, and you put the word lie, put the, the N of lines in brackets, and it's reading between the lines. Right, right. This is basically what Nexus is about. It's trying to, to illuminate the things which are a bit opaque in the world. And the fake news stories that have come out really in the last... What, a couple of months or so. It's extraordinary because it, it's it's actually an article that we published in this current issue. I'm not yeah. saying that Nexus precipitated the whole fake news stuff, but it's partly, you know, it, it's got to a point where you can't um, hide it anymore. It's up there. Well, this is a fascinating thing about this whole arena that you and I uh, um, live in or immersed in, and that is we we sort of, you know, I wake up some mornings thinking, my gosh, you know, I used to be in the alternative media, although I'm on a mainstream, you know, network. But I, I wake up one morning, think, I 
I, I might become obsolete. I might be so, I might be mainstream pretty soon because everything that we talk about is is coming true. Do you, do you ever feel that way? You're not going to be billed as the you know the leading alternative magazine anymore. You're going to be lumped in with the mainstream. I think. Well, let's say the alternative will become the mainstream. Yes, because the mainstream has so debased itself, has become so much PR-driven, fake. Uh, and people are beginning to see through it. They're beginning to see, you know, where did that story come from? What's that? We're talking about a cancer treatment here. Well, where did that originate from? And you realize it's a PR piece from some pharmaceutical company. It's not news at all. It's not investigative reporting. It's just rehashing somebody's publicity. And people are beginning to, to realize that, you know, they've, they've been misdirected for so long that they're now going to be looking for well, where's, some, where's some really good, real, hard evidence that I can follow up on? And they will gravitate to shows like yourself, magazines like Nexus, areas that are covered on coast to coast. These are things which have been around for many years and they've established themselves and they have a loyal audience. And people are saying, you know, you should listen to that or you should read that. And other people are saying, yeah, okay, I'll have a look. And, and that's where we get, you know, there are two types of people in the world, those who read Nexus and those who are about to. And there are many more people about to read Nexus. No question. Marcus Allen is uh, with us, publisher, distributor of Nexus magazine, and um, relaunching uh, the world's best-selling alternative news magazine, now available here in Canada and uh, the U.S., and again, making it uh, truly a global publication. Um, we'll be taking a time out shortly, but let's just get this conversation started now. We'll continue after the break. And I wanted to talk to you about another particular passion that you have, uh, and that is, uh, well, about, uh, I guess it's been six months since we passed the, uh, let's see, 46th anniversary of the, uh, the lunar landing, or we're approaching the 47th, I guess, another way of looking at it, July of 1969. And um, how did... How did you first get into researching, uh, you know, the possibility that the, the lunar landing was a hoax in your estimation? What, how did that happen? Was it before your involvement with Nexus or after? It was, it was actually just after my involvement with Nexus. Um, so we're talking over 20 years ago. And it was something which occurred quite by chance. Uh, you're probably familiar with Glastonbury in, in Somerset in England. Oh, yes. Um, the famous Glastonbury Festival, though it's actually held about five miles outside the town, but it's still called Glastonbury because everybody's familiar with it. And I was, I was at the, this, the Glastonbury Symposium, which is an annual event organized. At, it's looking at, um, originally it was designed to look at crop circles, and it's expanded now into conspiracies and various other areas. And one of the talks I listened to, this is over 20 years ago, um, uh, it was looking at, at various conspiracy areas. And one of the things mentioned was the moon landings. And, and the speaker said, well, of course, you know, it never happened. And he showed a few photographs up on the screen. And I thought, what's he on about? Of course it happened. I mean, I'm, I'm old enough to have been around when it did allegedly happen. Mm -hmm. I say allegedly advisedly now. <laughs> and uh, I thought, what's he talking about? I, you know, I, I was trained as a photographer many years ago in London, and I thought, well, 
you know, if he's showing that the photographs are a bit uh, suspect, I'll have a look at it and see if I can find out how wrong he is. So. Marcus, I'm going to jump right in here now. We'll, we'll, uh, we'll put a hold on it right there. We'll come back and we'll uh, pick up on the photographs, the photographic evidence, the lunar landing hoax with Marcus Allen, publisher-distributor of Nexus Magazine, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Different views make great conversation. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Question everything. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett on Zoomer Radio. We are back with Marcus Allen, Nexus Magazine. First of all, Marcus, how can people uh, subscribe or get a hold of this fine publication? Well, the best way is to, um, you can go online and uh, check out nexusmagazine.com which is the website, you can subscribe through that. Or you can go into, if you've got um, good bookshops that you can go into easily, you could probably find it in there. And if it's not there, ask for it, because that will get it into the bookshop. It's being distributed throughout North America, so it's very easy. Just say, go to your to your magazine distributor and uh, get it in for me. That would be another way of doing it. And it's still bi-monthly, right? Every other month? Yes, it comes out every other month. Um, current issue is the January-February issue. Next issue will be the uh, March-April issue. So there's some interesting stuff in there. I definitely recommend people to try it, at least. It's the the least you owe yourself. Give yourself an early New Year present, or even a late a late Christmas present. There you go, absolutely. Uh, before the break, we were talking about uh, the Apollo 11 lunar landing hoax and uh, how you became interested in it. You had a, uh, have a background in, in photography, so you kind of honed in on the, the photographic evidence because, I mean, that's an interesting area. There were, what, something like 30,000 photos taken on the, on the lunar uh, surface, supposedly? Uh, That's right. Yeah. And, and who was the principal photographer? Was it uh, was it uh, Buzz Aldrin or was it um, uh, Armstrong? Well, on, on Apollo 11, um, most of the photographs were taken um, by Neil Armstrong. Uh, there's an interesting story behind that because uh, how many people can actually identify a photograph of Neil Armstrong on the lunar surface? Hmm. Uh, there is apparently one which shows his back view in the distance, which is a bit weird when you think of it. He's, he's, you know, he's probably one of the most famous men in the 20th century. He passed away four years ago. Instead, he was buried at sea off the coast of Florida for various reasons. But um, there were 121 photographs taken on the lunar surface during Apollo 11, which is which is weird because there were actually two cameras, one, one camera for each astronaut. But on Apollo 11, only one camera was used. They had large, they were Hasselblad cameras. It's a very good camera. Um, not, not an ideal choice because uh, Hasselblad cameras are medium format. Most people are familiar with 35 millimeter cameras. Right, right. 
uh, Hasselblad are the next size up. They're medium format, 70 millimeter square. And um, they were clipped to their chest. They had a, a mounting point on the chest so they could keep their hand free to pick up the rocks and salute and wave the flag about. Sorry, I'm, I'm being a bit flippant here. Aren't I? <laughs> I, should, I should be more respectful, I suppose. <clears throat> but considering it all didn't, none of it happened on the moon, I think we can probably excuse that. But the more I looked at the photographs, in fact, finding the photographs, this was 20 years ago, before the internet um, had all the photographs posted, finding a copy of these Apollo photographs was actually quite difficult. I had to go to an astronomy show in London to find them, and I got half a dozen copies, or half a dozen different photographs. I started looking at them, and I thought, hey, these are great photographs. These are spectacularly good photographs. Now, I've used a Hasselblad camera myself, and I know that they produce very, very good images if you get it right. Right. But, uh, and most people, obviously, today would be familiar with digital cameras. The Apollo photographs were not digital images. They were all taken on film. Right, right. Again, that's another difficulty because you have to develop the film which means you've got to go and process it so if you take it on the moon and you process it how do you know you've got the exposure right because it didn't have an exposure meter ah. so the more I uncovered about the the limitations of this camera though it's technically a very good camera it's a very hard camera to use it had no exposure meter except for a little chart that was clipped to the top of the camera. So if you point it towards the sun, you had one exposure. If you point it away from the sun, you had a different exposure, which is quite routine. But you had to focus it by hand, set the aperture by hand, and the with those big, speed. With those big gloves on. With what, in effect, were armored gauntlets. Right. Now, how many, how many people could guarantee to get good photographs with a Hasselblad camera while wearing heavy-duty gardening gloves. And how do you it look into the viewfinder? How do you look into the viewfinder with that big helmet on? Well, you haven't got a viewfinder. Aha! Uh -huh. They took the viewfinder away because you couldn't look at it with your with your helmet on, because on a Hasselblad the viewfinder is on the top of the camera, and because you can't get your head down close enough, they said, "Oh, forget the viewfinder. We'll just take it away. Just." Just point it in the general direction of the subject you want to photograph. It'll be okay. <laughs> I mean, no. for God, look, come on, guys, you know, get a grip. You know, you know how many, my, my, my grandmother, God rest her soul, who had that, you know, the flip, the, uh, the viewfinder on top that you would flip, had the big flash pod on the side. And even with that, God rest her soul, you know, she was cutting off heads left, right, and center every Christmas, Thanksgiving. <laughs> and she had the advantage of a viewfinder. <laughs> <laughs> It's easy to cut heads off. You're quite right, because, all right, on, the Hass on this particular Hasselblad camera, they were using a, a, a semi-wide-angle lens. It was a 60-millimeter okay, so uh, lens. So it's slight wide-angle. It's the equivalent of a 35-millimeter lens on a 35-millimeter camera. Mm -hmm. Slight wide-angle. But it still has to be pointed in the right general direction. And if you look at the, the photographs of Apollo 11, and you mentioned there are over 30,000 actually taken on the lunar surface by the, um, um, the other Apollo missions, or right through to Apollo 17, very, very few photographs um, are, are, very, are, are very bad. Most of them are quite acceptable in terms of what they show. Right. 
And when they show the other astronaut, one astronaut taking a picture of another one, you don't get heads cut off. You don't get off-centered images, which you'd expect. Now, what you would then do, because you're in a place you've never been to before, you've got lighting conditions which are probably a bit tricky, you would do what's called bracketing. Yes. Now, bracketing means that you would take one the exposure you think it's right and one slightly above it, one slightly below it. If you are not sure about the focus, you would, because you can see the focus ring on top of the camera, you would adjust the focus as far as you could to get it right and then adjust it some more. So you would take lots and lots and lots of different pictures of the same subject to make sure you've got at least one that worked. That didn't happen. You can now go onto the Internet and you can look at every single photograph taken on the lunar surface and during the for the, the the, the alleged trips from the Earth to the Moon and back again. Right. You can, you can get all that, and you can look at them. And if you're a photographer, you're used to looking at contact sheets. So you can see the way in which the photographer built up to get the photographs you wanted. Right. You might take ten shots before you get the yes, one you, you want. And so they're shooting at a ratio of what, one to one? Yes, more or less that. I mean, uh, on, on the time they spent on the lunar surface, they were taking one photograph every 50 seconds, which, which doesn't sound a lot. You think, well, one photograph every 50 seconds. But they had a lot of other things to do as well, like collect rocks, salute, and plant flags, and drive around in little rovers, and get in and out of their lunar lander. So they, they had a lot of things to do. And the more I looked at the photographs, the more I looked at the images, the more questions arose, like, why in some cases can you see very clearly in what is obviously shadow. Now, the, um, the, the famous sequence of photographs which shows Buzz Aldrin coming down the ladder from the lunar lander, being photographed by Neil Armstrong. Yes. He's actually in shadow at that point. And what I would mean, be creating the shadow? Well, it's, it's the shadow of the lunar lander. Okay. So uh, he, he is in shadow. I mean, you can see the sunlight behind him it's fairly clear. And I think, well, okay, so they must have used some sort of flash gun to get the amount of light into his um, features so that you could see who he was and what he was doing. And right, he's, right. He's, he's coming down the ladder, right? Now I find out they didn't have any flash guns. They didn't have any reflectors. They didn't have any additional lighting. So where did all the light come from? Oh, it's obviously light reflected off the lunar surface. I think, no. no. Knowing enough about the photographs, and they are, these are a photographic film, they're not di digital. If you can get the highlight of light on the surface of the moon behind the lander correctly exposed, you would expect anything in shadow to be in such deep shadow you couldn't see any detail. And this was not the case. So there's something very, very strange going on. I had a other question about the uh, the actual operation of a, of a of a camera, even if it is a um, what's a Hasselblad worth about twenty grand? Well, yeah, about yeah, about uh, fifteen twenty grand. Yeah, that's, that's about. In fact, most of that is for the lens, because it, which is actually a very very good lens made right. by Zeiss. But even with but an yeah, expensive camera, uh, yeah. and, and I understand the only automatic function on that camera was the, uh, the the film winder to advance the film, right? That's correct. So. But with, with the mechanics of a camera, 
uh, you know, I take my iPhone 7 out, and if it's, you know, just even above freezing, it just shuts down. Uh, what's the surface on the, what's the temperature on the surface of the moon? On the surface of the moon, in sunlight, about, two, about um, 250 degrees Fahrenheit, 120 degrees centigrade. 120 in, right. It, it's like it's hot. It's very hot. Because there's no atmosphere to diffuse the sunlight. You're being, it, um, given that the sun is 93 million miles away, the Earth and the moon get about the same amount of sunlight. But right. because there's no atmosphere on the moon to diffuse it, you get the full energy of the sun. If you're in the shadow, it's minus 120 degrees centigrade. Right, minus 120. It's ex- like colder than any other place on Earth. The coldest place on Earth is in Siberia. It's minus 62 degrees centigrade. Well, that on leads, the moon, it's minus 100 degrees centigrade. That leads me to my question. I mean, wh- how, uh, would they have to, they would have had to have adapted that camera to withstand those temperature fluctuations. Otherwise, I'm thinking it, it, it wouldn't operate. Well, exactly. Uh, again, that, that, uh, this was something which, once you start looking into the detail of it, it starts to become obvious that there are a lot of unanswered questions. Now, obviously, the thing to do would then be to ask NASA if they could um, provide some suggestions as to how these things would work under those conditions. But when you realize that NASA stands for never a straight answer, that's what you're (laughs) going to get. There's no point in asking. They're not even prepared to to address the issue. I've tried. Um, In fact, (laughs) I approached NASA and said, look, uh, this is about 20-odd years ago when I started on this. I thought, these um, spacesuits they've been using, wandering around on the lunar surface, and we haven't even started talking about radiation yet. Van Allen belts, right. Van Allen belts. These spacesuits, which obviously protected all the astronauts from the dangers of radiation in space, which are quite severe. Could these same spacesuits, I thought, be used by technicians to go into Chernobyl, which had just happened, a three-mile island, and clear up the mess? Because if you, radiation is radiation. Right, right. If they can protect it from the uh, galactic cosmic rays and the solar particle events and all the, the photons and protons and electrons and all the other ons that go on in space, surely we could just use these magnificent spacesuits and go and clear up the mess. And so I contacted the manufacturers of the spacesuit, which is a company called Hamilton Standard. Mm-hmm part of the International Latex Corporation, people who make bras, so they make nice, bendy things. And they, <laughs> they said, we built the spacesuits, we made the spacesuits according to the specification that NASA had provided. You better address your question to them. So I tried, and I'm still waiting for the answer. Ah, and you will continue to wait. Uh, Marcus, I hold should. on. We will take a time out, come back, and continue to discuss uh, Nexus Magazine and the Apollo Lunar Landing, July of 1969, with the publisher of Nexus, Marcus Allen, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Shaking the world and seeing what falls. This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. The truth will set you free. But first, it will really tick you off. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show 
with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. We are back with Marcus Allen. Marcus, tell us once again how we can uh, subscribe to Nexus Magazine. This is Nexus Magazine. NexusMagazine.com would be your best bet. If you're sitting at your computer right now, check it out. You'll find out what it does, what it says, where you can get it from, how you can subscribe. And I should also mention the, uh, the Nexus News Feed. Make a note of that. Nexus News Feed, which is a free access uh, information resource. Quite a lot of the information that gets into Nexus comes through the nexusnewsfeed.com. Check it out. It covers a huge number of areas of information, whether it's ancient civilizations, health issues, spirituality, uh, anything that, that you feel interested in, you'll find on the nexusnewsfeed.com. But Nexus Magazine is the, is the, the major resource because it's available. And it's very hard to take a, a, an iPhone or a computer into the bath with you if you want to read it. <laughs> very inadvisable to drop it. But you can take Nexus magazine into the bath with you because that's going to be dried out easily enough. If you drop <laughs> you it Yet another you advantage. Another you advantage. That's true. <laughs> All right. We were talking about the, uh, the, the photographs and um, uh, exhibits, number one, in your case against the Apollo 11 lunar landing. Um, just a, a, a slight side road here, and then we'll, we'll uh, wander back to the, uh, the main point of the discussion, but you, you took your evidence in your, your presentation right into the lion's den a few years ago. You went to the, um, the Interplanetary Society, I think it was in Liverpool at the time, uh, and these are, I mean, that society, that's like Arthur C. Clarke and, and uh, astronomers, and, and uh, these are hard-boiled scientists. Did you, why did they invite you, and, and how did you feel when you, uh, you walked in there to tell them the lunar landing was a hoax? <laughs> Terrified. Into the lion's den it was. No, it was, it was, it was very, very interesting, that one. Um, there obviously been quite a lot of discussion. As you say, the British Interplanetary Society is the, the oldest and longest established um, society of its type in the world. And it was founded and, and set up originally in Liverpool, in the north of England. Very good football team I have as well, by the way. I've heard. Uh, it was set up in 1933, and some of the, the major uh, people involved, Arthur C. Clarke was one, Patrick Moore was another. Uh, many people, in fact, Neil Armstrong is an honor, or was an honorary member. Buzz Aldrin has been there. Ed Mitchell's been there. Many of the astronauts have mm. been there. Um, and I got invited because I, I've done many talks, many presentations, um, which I like doing because uh, it helps me to promote Nexus as well. It's a sort of double-edged sword. And um, they'd obviously heard about me and invited me to come and explain my position. Now, this was then announced in the... Um, uh, the, uh, and the British Interplanetary Society have regular speaking sessions, usually about one every two weeks or so. They have somebody talking about astronomy, which is the main subject, talking about space travel, talking about all different types of um, aspects of space. And this was obviously one that they felt was, appro was appropriate for the society. So they announced it on their website, 
and in their magazine. The magazine's called Space Flight. And all hell broke loose. <laughs> How on earth could this venerable society invite a hoax believer? That's what I am. I'm a hoax believer. To, to address it, it would it would be it would denigrate the society. Anyway, once once all the fuss had died down, there was always quite a bit of fuss. Um, they said, right, well, we're going to change it slightly. We won't have you just just you talking. We're going to have a debate. You can present your case, and then we'll have one of our esteemed members present the other side, and we'll refute everything you say. <laughs> you said with confidence. Uh, so that's how it started. We we had um, uh, 20 minutes each. I could present my side of it. The other side could be could then refute everything I said, tear me to pieces, make me look a complete idiot, which they singularly failed to do. We then had a question and answer session, which lasted about an hour, which is quite unexpected. And the main criticism of the person refuting what I had to say was that he didn't do it. He didn't refute anything I said. He wandered off on his own uh, little talk, explaining what a wonderful thing Apollo was and how extremely fascinating all the astronauts were and how, of course, NASA would only tell you the truth. So how can you believe somebody who comes along and says they don't? So... Did you change any minds? I don't know if I changed any minds, because what one has here is called confirmation bias. Mm, yes. People will believe and continue to believe what they believe, despite any evidence presented to the contrary. All right, we're going to, uh, this was a short segment, uh, Marcus. We'll take a time out, come back and finish up. Marcus Allen, publisher, Nexus Magazine. Back with more in a moment. Don't be afraid of the dark. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. From Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416 360 0740 or toll free 1 866 740 4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM 740. When in doubt, blame the government. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. Marcus Allen is the publisher, distributor of Nexus Magazine, which has been uh, relaunched, a, a bold new look, uh, same great content. And uh, once again, Marcus, how do people subscribe? Right, the best way to subscribe uh, to Nexus Magazine is go onto the website, nexusmagazine.com. You'll see subscription information there. It's, uh, it's good value. Um, price in the UK is £4.50. The price in the US is, I think, it's $6.99. Um, price in Canada, I think, is $7.99. So there is, it's, it's a good value magazine. And, and if the price worries you, then obviously you're not ready for Nexus yet. <laughs> it's a bi-monthly, and uh, the latest issue... Uh, just give us uh, a, a few of the articles. You mentioned uh, a, a major piece on fake news, which, of course, is most timely. Oh, yes, yes. PR, propaganda, and the press. Reading between the lines, it's headed. The public relations hasn't merely leaked into the news, it's saturated it, is part of the promotion to the article. We also carry 
um, the annual report from Project Censored, which looks at 25 news stories of 20, 2015, 2016, that were the most ignored by the U.S. corporate media. Well, that's a surprise. <laughs> yes. Um, we have a fascinating article on the Mandelbrot set. And, uh, I'm sure you're familiar with Mandelbrot. Mm-hmm. Uh, Benoit Mandelbrot was the uh, IBM computer professor who created the formula that would create the Mandelbrot image, which is that magnificent heart-shaped image, which is basically what nature does to produce itself. Nature is based on fractals, right, which is right. what Mandelbrot set is. I'm also interested in crop circles, and uh, that was the thing that got me into crop circles, which was the the iconic Mandelbrot image that appeared in the, on the east uh, near Cambridge in England. Right, right. Yeah, in so 1992. Many, so many of them appear to be fractals. That's true. Okay. Extraordinary. All right. So, so back to uh, back to your presentation at the British Interplanetary Society and uh, your evidence, photographic evidence that the lunar landing ho- was a hoax. Um, and again, they they didn't really um, debate the evidence. Um, they just, I guess, ignored it, which is well. It, it was basically um, the standard thing which which many people do in this area and and other areas. Uh, they don't play the ball; they kick the man. So <laughs> right. I I was being attacked personally, which is, is fine. Some, yeah. I, I'm big enough and old enough and ugly enough to not worry about it. Well, it is a sensitive. It is a sensitive area because uh, you know it is one of those sacred cows, particularly because you know people um, died uh, in the the Mercury program and the Gemini program uh, in this space race, and so I guess people feel that somehow what you're doing is is denigrating not only this great accomplishment but and I know this is not what you're doing but this is what I'm I'm assuming is is where a lot of the vitriol comes from that you're somehow you know tainting the legacy including those that that gave the ultimate sacrifice that's 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 a very good summary actually it's very uh, that's very accurate um it's it's one of those iconic areas the apollo moon landings and the, the number of people who've said to me, it's because of the Apollo moon landings I got into the science areas, mm-hmm. and that's why the, I do the job I do today. People, people really feel that they, they owe the Apollo missions a lot of what their life has turned out to be, which is fine. I mean, I don't have a problem with that. It, it, it was a, a very good demonstration of the use of science, because what we saw or what we thought we were looking at, was an incredible achievement. I would love it to be true. I really would. I would love it to, to believe that man has landed on the moon. Is now, it? I can quite understand that if somebody comes along and says, nah, I didn't, nah, it's all fake, um, the people get quite upset. And we've seen people being upset actually recently in the American elections, haven't we? Yes, indeed. I'm, I'm, which the- I'm trying to think of it. You know, the the comeback to that, the the plausible um, explanation that yes, we landed on the on the moon, uh, or the, the the Americans landed on the moon, but 
in order to prevent some sort of a public relations catastrophe, that the pictures didn't turn out, that the, you know, the television feed was cut or didn't, you know, it didn't transmit properly, uh, that they did, in fact, uh, shoot all of that on a sound stage somewhere in order to it's sort of, it's the equivalent of, of um, I guess, you know, kicking the one-point convert after the six-point touchdown. They, they couldn't, they couldn't risk not having something to show the world, photographs, the television feed, and so that was done beforehand. Is, is that not a, a possible explanation? Absolutely. Um, that's, that's a very plausible situation. Uh, because don't forget that this, this, this was the famous space race, wasn't it? Mm. Um, and John Kennedy, who had made his original announcement back in May 1961, land a man on the moon before the decade is out and all that, the decade was rapidly coming to the end. They had to be seen to achieve their dead president's challenge, which is fine. 400,000 people worked on Apollo at the height of the program. Uh, they weren't party to any of this. A very, very small number of people would have been involved. So what you've got is a situation where it has to be seen to be done. Yeah. It's all going to be shown live on television. Now, in the eight years between the announcement of of the program and the completion of it in July 69, there was a lot of training, a lot of preparation, a lot of work to be done. Part of that work would have been real-time simulation of the missions. Mm -hmm. It's a logical thing to do. They had simulators of the lander, they had simulators of the command module, and they did real-time simulation. So if the, if, the, if the mission was going to take eight days, they had a, a a simulation for eight days, so everybody could get the idea of what it was going to be, what was going to happen. These were all filmed, these were all photographed, obviously. So you could debrief them and say, "Look, when you come down the ladder, Buzz, don't put your foot there, put it there, you fall off." This is normal, practical things to do. Of course, they were photographed. Of course, they were filmed. Now, if what happened was that they they took off, as we all saw. They, la they flew to the moon, they, got out, they walked about, they took the photographs, talked to the president, collected some rocks, waved some flags, came back again. Let's develop all those photographs you've just taken. So they developed the photographs. Oh, shit, what's happened? Oh, we forgot the radiation. Mm. It's fogged the film. That's right. If that had happened, and NASA had come up and said, uh, sorry, guys, we forgot about the radiation. Uh, the film got fogged. The photographs didn't come out. But this is what it looked like, because we, when we did the training exercises, we got it as close as possible. Neil and Buzz and all the other guys, they'll tell you this is what it looked like. If that is what they had said, I would have no problem with it. But it's not what they said. NASA said, these photographs were taken on the lunar surface. I contend they could not have been because their film would have been fogged by the radiation and the heat. The batteries wouldn't have worked. They wouldn't have been able to get to the moon because they'd have been incapacitated by the radiation in the Van Allen belts. The rockets didn't work properly. We know now. They, they were not powerful enough. And have you heard the story of the Apollo 13 capsule? that the Russians got hold of? 
that they got hold of. No, no. I yep. mean, we all remember the Apollo 13 mission. Um, That's a wonderful story, isn't it? Yeah, I mean... It's, it, it's, the, it's the space rescue story. Right, right. I mean, by this time, it was so mundane, they weren't even televising it live. <laughs> Wasn't it a great film that Tom Hanks got It's a wonderful film. Uh, a little bit of myth-making, I'm guessing. You're... Definitely. Mm-hmm. Now, back to, back to real-world time here. April 1970, April the 11th, was when Apollo 13 launched from Cape Canaveral. It wasn't called Cape Kennedy until 1973. Right. 1970, April. Apollo 13 launched. It went somewhere. April the 12th, 1970, in the Bay of Biscay, mm-hmm. which is between or off the coast of France and Spain, right. a Russian submarine is observed by a Canadian ore carrier. In, and this Russian submarine is in some difficulty. There's two other ships near it, Russian ships, because there's a big Russian naval exercise going on. Somehow, an Apollo command module is seen floating in the water and is taken on board a Russian fishing vessel. Now, that is a euphemism for a spy ship. Mm. Remember the Pueblo? Yes, yes. That's the American equivalent of the Russian trawler. Ah. This, this is a real Apollo command module. It is taken by the Russians to Murmansk, on the north coast of Russia. In September 1970, the U.S. Coast Guard, called the South Wind, pays a courtesy visit, we're told, to Murmansk, where it collects this Apollo command module. It's strapped to its deck. It was pre-planned, this visit, because the U.S. Coast Guard cutter, uh, the South Wind, normally had a five-inch gun on its front deck. This gun had been removed to allow space to stow the Apollo command module, which weighs about six tons, seven tons. Wow. It goes, uh, the south wind goes to Manx for three days. It takes on board the, the, the command module. There are photographs to show it. This isn't some weird story. This is, this is for real. This is reported throughout... Um, Russia, or the Soviet Union as it was then, is not reported in America. I so, wonder why. So what happened to Lovell and Swigert and Hayes, the the, uh, the crew? Were they were they sent back that, to the U.S. quietly? That's what it appears that the submarine was doing. It was taking them on board. And then they were returned to the United States. They were States. returned. Uh-huh. Or, they were not on, or they were not in the capsule in the first place. Aha. Uh-huh. There we go. Listen, we'll have to leave Apollo 13 for another day, and uh, we'll, we'll do that. Oh, we'll yes. delve into it even further. Uh, Marcus, a, a real delight uh, finally making your acquaintance and having you on the program. Thank you. Thank you very much, Richard. I really enjoyed it. Thank you for your 
great questions. NexusMagazine.com. Just uh, click on there and subscribe. It's quick and it's easy and well worth it. My thanks to Marcus Allen. My website is strangeplanet.ca. That's your portal to this program. Check it out. Click on the blue members button, and that will allow you to register. It's quick, easy, and fast. And uh, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett, S-Y, because I love you, R-E-T-T, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, long-haul truck, taxi, RV, camper, your parents' basement, your loft, that greasy spoon just off the interstate, and your cabin in the woods. A special hello to all of you listening in on our flagship station, Zoomer Radio, right here in Toronto, Canada. That's AM 740 and 96.7 FM. Uh, Those of you listening in on one of our 32-plus affiliates and counting, Uh, Thanks to Syndication Networks, by the way. Chris and Randy, thanks for all your hard work and loyalty and support. Uh, Hello to all of you listening uh, in on the podcast at iTunes, TuneIn.com, Stitcher Radio, and TalkZone.com. Howdy to all of you listening through the Zoomer Radio and Conspiracy Show apps, uh, which are both fabulous and free downloads. And uh, while I'm on that, a special thanks to uh, Sharon Forster, Uh, who worked so hard on developing our app, the Conspiracy Show app. It is, as I say, fabulous. It's free, and I'm so proud of it. So if you haven't gotten it, uh, please download it. Uh, Again, it's available on Google Play if you've got an Android, and iTunes, of course, uh, for you iPhone users. However, and wherever you're listening, I bid thee the warmest of welcomes to the Conspiracy Show, and I thank you for your fine company. Uh, Rosemary Ellen Guiley is standing by. It's that time of the month. Uh, for our Paranormal News Roundup, and Rosemary is with us for the full hour tonight uh, to discuss a paranormal encounter that's uh, just recently come to, uh, to light in Russia. Uh, it's interesting, now that the, the yoke of, of communism has supposedly uh, been lifted from the, uh, from the motherland, and, and many of them are re-embracing um, uh, religion, uh, people are starting to talk again over there about the, the paranormal activity in their lives. And uh, we have one such report Uh, Tonight, We'll also talk about the ghost island in New York City. Uh, Get this. There is um, just a tiny speck of an island up there near the Bronx, near Rikers Island in the East River. It's about 20 acres, and uh, uh, it's where they sent uh, new arrivals to the United States that had some disease, tuberculosis or leprosy. Uh, And uh, people were sent there, you know, uh, against their will. I mean, it wasn't voluntary. And it was pretty much a death sentence. If you were sent to, uh, it's called North Border Island, and it's been abandoned for many, many, many years. Typhoid Mary was there. Anyway, she'll tell us all about the ghost island in New York City uh, and uh, and much more. Then in the second half of the, uh, the hour, we'll talk about Thornwood Castle in uh, Washington State. It's an actual castle, and it has lots of haunting activity. Thornwood. Uh, next week on the program, Canada's Edgar Casey, Dr. Douglas Cottrell, will be here with some predictions for 2017. Uh, plus, former police reporter Scott Reeder, uh, now with NPR, National Public Radio, he has a new true.
true crime style podcast uh, premiering this month on NPR, and he'll be along to talk about. We've got some, he has some great true crime cases to talk about. Uh, that's all part of uh, the program next week. Rosemary Ellen Guiley is one of the world's leading experts on the paranormal with more than 60 books published on a wide range of subject matter. Her most recent titles include Haunted by the Things You Love and Demon Haunted, uh, both co-authored with John Zaffis, the uh, the star of The Haunted Collector, uh, The Zozo Phenomenon, and Ouija Gone Wild. Hey, Rosemary, how are you? Well, I'm doing well, Richard. It's starting to be the busy time for me already, just after the first of the year, going off for events already. I heard a bird tells me you're getting ready to jump on a plane and go to Australia. Well, that's right. Down under for the first time in a long time. I have an afterlife conference followed by a Close Encounters UFO conference uh, in Byron that I'll be speaking at. And uh, then we're, uh, Joe and I will be doing a little R&R for a few days in Sydney. Is Australia a hotspot for UFO activity? They get a fair amount, actually, yes. And uh, a lot of paranormal activity as well. Uh, now, I've never been to the western side of Australia, just the east coast. Um, but um, there are a fair number of sightings just uh, on that eastern perimeter. All right. We... Um... We've been hearing so much about uh, all this, uh, you know, Russian hacking, and uh, this is kind of a, a turn of the tables because, I, well, I guess really since the fall of the Berlin Wall, we're starting to get more and more information coming out of the former Soviet Union in the realm of the paranormal. Uh, and some of these stories happened quite a while ago, but we're only hearing about them now. And, and one such case uh, comes from Moscow all the way back uh, in uh, the fall of 2000 from a researcher by the name of... Albert Rosales, uh, involving a humanoid encounter in Russia. What do you hear? What do you know? Well, actually, I I would call this something other than a humanoid encounter, but the nut of it is uh, a woman goes out looking for mushrooms in the woods, and uh, she uh, gets lost, sits down on a tree stump, uh, wondering how she's going to get back to the village, and suddenly this strange figure wearing a coat... um, a cloak, actually, uh, and a military uniform just materializes out of the woods and uh, shows her how to get back to the village. And then he pulls the the hood uh, off his head, and she is absolutely flabbergasted to see that it is her long-lost boyfriend who disappeared in Afghanistan in the early 1980s. And there was kind of a mystical light around him, Purple, some purple uh, light came out of his eyes, Uh, She got all choked up, couldn't uh, talk. He reaches out to her, and uh, then she it's like she goes unconscious. And when she regains consciousness, she's not sitting on the tree stump anymore, but she is actually en route uh, back to the uh, village, and she can see the lights of the village ahead of her. Now, was she... I would imagine that she would have been... uh, I mean, was she frightened, or was she she just confused? I mean, what, what was her reaction, do we know? Aside from her, her, aside from fainting, <laughs> her first reaction was uh, she was just very surprised and she didn't feel afraid. 
um, it, it's like uh, she was sort of caught up in something like, well, what on earth is going on here? And when people have these kinds of encounters, what I think happened here is I wouldn't call it a humanoid encounter because um, that's kind of a category that's reserved for mysterious creatures that have a human-like shape. This was really an apparition of, of her boyfriend who probably died in Afghanistan. You know, he disappeared decades ago. And so in a moment of crisis, he materializes like an angel and uh, helps her uh, find her way back to, um, to, to the village. And it's very similar to uh, what we call mysterious stranger encounters, where people are in a jam, sometimes they are lost, uh, they don't know what to do, and a mysterious stranger suddenly appears and has kind of some unusual aura or energy or light about him and solves the problem, helps them out, and then vanishes. And um, that's very similar here. You could even make the case that maybe this was an angel in the guise of her boyfriend, but um, we'll never know. And uh, I think she had a genuine encounter uh, of some sort of an apparitional figure in a moment of need. My other, uh, not to be sarcastic here, but um, she, I, I'm be, I'd be very curious to know what kind of mushrooms she was looking for, hint, hint. <laughs> and my, well, my sure technical producer is nodding in agreement. <laughs> I'm sure there's a skeptic out there who will raise that very question. <laughs> well, you know, that it is a legitimate question, and but, uh, you know, experiments uh, done with uh, psilocybin and things like that doesn't necessarily discount the, the existence of the supernatural. It may be that it just opens up certain regions of the brain that are receptive to, to seeing things the rest of us don't. I, I agree. Now, I, I've never used any substances like that. Um, but just based upon um, anecdotal evidence and research and, you know, people I know who've done this sort of uh, experimentation, I do agree that it's what Aldous Huxley said, you know, it, it opens up the doors of perception. And they're not uh, fantasy experiences as uh, glimpses into other realities. So let's say for the sake of things that maybe she had ingested something that, you know, altered her state of consciousness, it enabled her then to have an experience that uh, helped her out. Yes, because by all accounts, she probably would have uh, perished out in the, because she was lost, right? She was definitely lost. And she might have found her way back, but uh, um, she might have um, not been able to before dark. And um, she was in serious danger at that point. Have you been to Russia, by, by the way? Have you, have you been over there to do an investigation? I haven't done any investigations there. I was there in 1985. I've been there once, and this was under the, uh, the Gorbachev era. And things were starting to loosen up, but um, there still uh, were these beliefs against the paranormal because there was um, communism held that all that was tied into religious stuff and paranormal didn't exist. And um, it took a long time for these stories to to start seeping out. And as you pointed out, um, we're just now starting to hear about a lot of them. Well, closer to home, uh, the mysterious ghost island of New York City. Uh, this, to me, was a fascinating story. Never heard this one before, and I'd love to get your take on it. It's very much like a lot of other places that paranormal investigators love to go. Um, derelict uh, medical facilities and prisons. This was not a prison. It was basically a medical facility. And back in the late 
19th century when immigrants were still pouring into America and they were all being processed uh, through New York on, on that side of the country, um, a lot of them were sick. And epidemics uh, of uh, typhoid and smallpox and tuberculosis uh, would run rampant through the immigrant community and um, also people who were already living there. Well, it was the practice of the time to ship people like that off to some remote area where they could not infect other people. And uh, we still have sanatoriums like that around America. Waverly Hills in Louisville, Kentucky is one of the most famous, but somewhere outside of a population center. So what could be better than an island in the East River? And it's near a, a prison island, uh, by the way, too, Rikers Island. Right, which up is near still the Bronx, occupied. up in the Bronx. That's right. And this island now is abandoned, but uh, for many decades uh, it housed these sick people, most of whom were poor or the newly immigrated to America. They were in wretched conditions. Some of them never left. They died and were buried there. Families never heard uh, about their fate. And uh, you can imagine what kind of residual haunting uh, phenomena would still be there. Where, where we have these places where, where there was suffering, um, unhappy death, uh, and a concentration of that over a period of time, there's a lot of residual haunting energy that can still be experienced today. No doubt. And, this is, uh, um, it's called North Brother Island, and it's a tiny, just a speck of an island, 20 acres, but I'd never heard of it before. 20 acres up, as you say, near Rikers Island in, in, in the Bronx in the East River. And, um, it's it's, been a, this, it's not well known no. because nobody's allowed on it. Uh, you know, it's not a tourist place. Uh, I think they allow, um, you know, uh, nature researchers to go there. Um, but um, to my knowledge, I don't think it's been paranormally investigated. And, you know, Richard, I'm not sure that even I would want to go to a place like this because um, I have heard that uh, things like tuberculosis and especially smallpox, uh, those viruses can remain active. And uh, here... You've got people who were buried on the island. Uh, some of those grave sites might um, have been very shallow, easily disturbed. Now you've got a very old facility that's really not very healthy to be in. It's, um, it, it would be a very unhealthy place to investigate, but I'm sure you'd get a lot of results. Oh, no doubt, and I'm with you. I mean, I wouldn't want to set foot on this place, as you mentioned. Uh, tuberculosis, uh, even leprosy, uh, diphtheria, typhus. Um, you name it, anybody that uh, got off the ships and um, showed any symptoms. I mean, this was these were forced quarantines. These were not voluntary. These people were taken there probably under guard, and anyone who tried to escape, I'm sure, would be severely uh, dealt with. Well, yes, they were rounded up uh, and herded off to the island. If you were sick and, and you had to go, you were taken away from your family. And the conditions there were very poor. Um, I just want to mention that um, this island housed a very famous person by the name of Typhoid Mary. Ah, and nice. she was a cook. She was a cook in New York, and she was a rare person who was able to transmit typhoid without showing symptoms and becoming sick herself. And so people who ate her food would get sick with typhoid. Well, they shipped her off to the island, and she insisted that... Um, this was an error that she was not responsible for people getting typhoid. They allowed her to uh, to leave on the condition that she not go back to being a cook, which she promptly violated. She changed her name and went back to cooking, and people started dying again. 
And uh, so she, she wound up spending the last of her days there and dying uh, on North Island. Um, having um, um, transmitted the uh, typhoid fever to at least 50-some people. Oh, my. Wow. As you say, well, uh, it was a death sentence pretty much. I mean, the mortality rate, the fatality rate, when one was uh, dispensed to North Border was pretty, pretty, pretty high. So not too many got off. As you say, it would be a hot spot uh, for paranormal investigations, but uh, I'm with you. I don't think I'd want to set foot on the ghost island of New York City. Rosemary, we'll take a time out, come back. More stories as part of our paranormal news roundup on the other side, right here on The Conspiracy Show. When you look at the sky, ever wonder if someone's looking back? This is The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard live, call 416-360-0740 or toll-free at 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Curiosity, or did the devil make you do it? Whatever the reason, welcome back to The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To talk to Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. We are back with paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley, and her website, once again, is visionaryliving.com, visionaryliving.com. All right. Uh, I remember uh, back in the 70s, a couple of stories uh, came out about these cargo cults. Uh, in fact, I think the, uh, the film The Gods Must Be Crazy was kind of based on this idea of cargo cults where something would fly off the back of a plane, uh, fall out of a plane, or maybe a, a plane would crash on some remote island, maybe in the South Pacific, and whatever artifacts that the locals would find, because it fell from the sky, these would, would be primarily pretty primitive cultures, uh, they assumed it was from the gods. And uh, here we have another one of these uh, cargo cult cases um, going back to... Um, well, when was it now? We're talking about um, uh, the Republic of Vanuatu, um, which is where? In the South Pacific again? It's actually uh, not too far from where I'm, I'm headed. It's off the uh, northeast coast of Australia. It's uh, just a little further down from Malaysia and the Philippines. And um, this goes back to uh, probably the 1800s when uh, these islands were colonized by, uh, by the English and the French. And uh, the Christian miss missionaries came in, and um, uh, the um, oppression of the natives was, was very, very severe. And um, they, ha they had kind of a, a hero back then who figures into the cargo cult later on, which uh, really sprang out of World War II. Um, there, there were vestiges of that before that, but the cargo cult really took hold uh, during the wartime era. But this John Frum character uh, was supposedly a savior, a local savior, who uh, would promise people that if they turned away from the European oppressors and the European ways, 
that uh, abundance and prosperity would uh, would be theirs. And his name seems to be um, a corruption of the phrase John from Jesus Christ or um, a reference to John the Baptist. They called him John from. Ah. And so there was a cult around him, and he was said to uh, reside in the in the island volcano. Uh, and the day would come, and we find this motif in mythology a lot, uh, where a local hero, when the day comes, when his people need him, uh, the local hero emerges from wherever he's been, um, uh, whether it's the mists of Avalon or a volcano or, or um, somewhere else, and uh, leads the people to safety or prosperity or freedom, uh, whatever. And so there is this mythology around John Frum. Well, in the 1940s, when the soldiers came and started occupying these islands for military advantage, um, they put up all these buildings, they built airstrips, and these cargo planes came and delivered things. Uh, and uh, after the war, uh, everybody left. Uh, all of the, uh, the Westerners left. And this cargo cult started up uh, with the idea that, well, if certain rituals could take place, if they imitated the soldiers, maybe that would bring more of these mysterious birds in the sky who would drop um, the bounty of the cargo with food and supplies and things like that. Right. So the natives built these um, uh, kind of um, makeshift airstrips and uh, towers and whatnot and went through rituals to try and, and bring the sky gods back. Right. And what happened? And nothing. <laughs> <laughs> They're still waiting. The Great Disappointment, <laughs> part two. <laughs> right. Uh, no, no cargo has been dropping from the sky. And uh, uh, if, it's, if, if it's pointed out that, well, you know, this is not, not a real thing, you know, it's like uh, a fantasy. Um, you know, there are a lot of people on these islands who still believe that um, that some version of this is going to happen. So every year there are these very sacred rituals uh, to invoke the bounty of the sky gods and the return of this this hero, John Frum. And uh, it's amazing that it's still going on today, but these, these are very isolated uh, islands. Right. There's even there's a fascinating case, um, the island of New Hanover in the, uh, it's called the Bismarck Archipel Archipelago. I'm not sure where that is. Um, again, I'm guessing it's uh, somewhere in the South Pacific. But another cargo cult arose there back in 1968 claiming that the true secret of the cargo was known only to one one man, and that was President Lyndon Johnson. And the um, the natives on this island revolted against their Australia. Yeah, it was in uh, the South Pacific. They re revolted against their Australian rulers. And um, they saved up $75,000, sent a letter to Johnson offering to buy him and make him king of New Hanover. <laughs> but strangely enough, he didn't accept. Uh, oh, how could he have passed it up? <laughs> and um, Well, and... Uh, Sorry, I was just Another say, cult formed yeah. around uh, Prince Philip in the 1970s. He visited uh, uh, this village, and um, he became the, the uh, cult hero and um, the figure who was going to deliver, you know, this um, um, new world, so to speak. And um, it's it's very strange, uh, but I, I think a lot of it has to do with the fact that. Uh, these are very remote areas, and so very little um, mingles in with their 
beliefs and uh, cultural changes to um, f- for these sorts of things to you know fade into the distant past. Sure, you, you take an isolated civilization, and all of a sudden something drops from the sky like a Coca-Cola bottle, and uh, you know it's 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 made of material that you haven't seen before, and and it falls from the sky. You know, it's not hard to understand why something like that could happen. Especially again in these uh, these isolated island uh, remote islands in the uh, the South Pacific or or wherever, uh, I want to talk about something I know that's uh, near and dear to you. You've penned encyclopedias about uh, this particular topic, and that has to do uh, with people who believe they have seen an angel. And uh, perhaps our first story out of the shoot tonight about the. Um, uh, the Russian woman sort of fits in this mold, but uh, let's talk about it. There's a, an interesting story in the uh, the Daily Mail online um, about a uh, um, a, um, a former squadron leader by the name of Tom Rounds who believes angels saved his life while flying. And there's some other great examples here as well. It's an interesting story. Uh, a survey that indicates that approximately one in ten people who were surveyed in Britain uh, believe in angels, and I actually think the figure is a lot higher. But uh, some people don't want to admit to believing in angels. But the story about Tom Rounds is uh, very interesting. It also fits in uh, in a way into the mysterious stranger of the hand of God um, motifs as well. He's he's on a training mission. Um, and this was in the uh, 1980s. He was a navigator uh, on this, um, sounds like a cargo plane of some sort, or a, a, a troop plane. And um, they, they were coming into land, and uh, there was such poor visibility that they could not see. And they got as low as 250 feet off the ground, flying completely blind. And all of a sudden, he had a this visceral physical uh, feeling that something was dreadfully wrong and the plane needed to pull sharply up and bank to the left to avoid something that they could not see. And so he urged the pilot to do so, and they did. And um, they, uh, they discovered that they were in danger of flying into the side of a mountain. And if they had not taken that last-minute extreme measure, uh, they very well could have crashed and, and all been killed. Uh, and he felt that um, it was an angel who came to his rescue and prompted him in that way. Other people have had similar uh, stories. Um, uh, for example, I've, I've collected a number of them, and I have them in some of my books, where people have felt steering wheels yanked out of their hands uh, and turned, uh, in order to avoid some catastrophic road accident. And uh, so who who does that? Is it an angel? Is it the hand of God? Is it uh, something else? Was this Sergeant Rounds? Sorry, in my intuition? case in my case it was the driving instructor sitting to my right. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. I, I can't I, I can't imagine what it's like to be a driving instructor. <laughs> you you better have Nerve some guardian steel. angels. Yes, you better have some guardian angels. Well, you you <laughs> mentioned people having a, sort of this a physical sensation, and it's interesting because in this in this uh, Daily um, Mail uh, story, it says that one in ten Britons claim to have seen or heard an angel, double those who said the same six years ago. So it seems to be it's on the increase, or people feel more comfortable about admitting to it. I think so. 
And um, in, in some research that I did um, a while back, because in America we, we had uh, a real angel craze that went through most of the 90s, and uh, that's when some of my first books on angels came out. And um, the research I did showed that even as early as mid, or as late, I should say, as late as mid-century, many people were still reluctant to acknowledge that they believed in angels or thought they'd had an experience of angels because they felt no underpinning of support from religion or society in that regard. They they were worried that they were going to be laughed at. And so I am glad to see that more people are coming out uh, with these um, uh, beliefs and experiences. And uh, people may put different interpretations on it. You know, one person may say it was an angel. Another person may say it was my intuition, my higher self. Someone else could say it was the hand of God, because sometimes these agents, whatever the intervening agent is, it's not seen, it's felt, and people do have these physical reactions. So um, a very interesting experience uh, that he had. Something uh, divine uh, came to his rescue, and if not for him, and being able to prevail on the pilot, all would have been lost. Uh, is there a particular uh, a time of year? Uh, uh, I don't know if any studies have been done about this, uh, but is there a time of year when people have more encounters with angels? I'm not aware of any uh, time periods like that. I mean, certainly people think about angels more at the holiday time. Yes, yeah, that's what uh, I was wondering. Because of, yeah, the, and I, uh, so... We think about these things, we're more likely to talk about them. But the stories that I have collected over the decades, they they happen uh, all throughout the year. I do have a book on, on Christmas-oriented stories. It's called um, Christmas Angels, Two Stories of Hope and Healing. They all have a Christmas theme. But these um, angelic rescues and interventions can happen any time. Uh, and it's usually a, a crisis moment. It may not be something like this, where... Um, disaster is, is seconds away. It could be a life crisis of some sort, uh, a turning point in life, or feeling like you're at a crossroads and something major has to change. It can also be those kinds of crises that then uh, seem to open the door for um, something from another realm to intervene uh, with some healing or a solution that the individual feels that they ne- is absolutely right. And do we each have uh, our own guardian angel, or is is that just pop culture? I do believe in guardian angels uh, that uh, follow us throughout life from from birth until we die, and also that we're surrounded by as as many angels as we need. Uh, There there are other angels who come to our aid uh, with help and guidance and uh, and healing. The more you contemplate angels, um, incorporate um, uh, linking to them in meditation, uh, the more likely you are to feel their presence uh, throughout a lot of activities, and more than one presence as well. All right, we'll uh, take a time out. When we come back, uh, we're going to focus on uh, one of your earlier investigations, which centers around Thornwood Castle in the great state of Washington. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator, visionaryliving.com, her website. Back with more of The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. My name is Richard Serrett. The truth is not out there. It's right here. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. 
Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. If you're sure your phone isn't tapped, call now. 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator who joins us the second Sunday of every month right here on The Conspiracy Show. Uh, Rosemary, let's uh, f- focus on one of your earlier investigations, and uh, this is uh, Thornwood Castle up in, uh, in Washington State, um, which I know at one time was a real hotbed uh, for paranormal investigators, and things have kind of quieted down there, supposedly, and now it's being offered up as a, as a wedding venue, uh, which begs sort of the question as to whether a place can become unhaunted. Uh, but before we get to that, let, let, let's let's get the particulars on Thornwood Castle. Uh, it is an interesting place, and I investigated there a few years ago. Uh, it's got a tremendous amount of activity in it, and it really is of current interest today. And I've written about this recently because uh, we've seen this in the paranormal, where places that have been um, highly active and have attracted a lot of investigations suddenly want to be off the paranormal map. They want to become unhaunted. And this is, uh, I wouldn't call it a trend, but um, I've I've been seeing this a lot lately. And uh, so uh, it's um, a very current interest in the paranormal community. Thornwood Castle was built uh, right around uh, the early 20th century by a very wealthy businessman. He was a Quaker Uh, His name was Chester Thorne, and he did really well for himself. And it was the custom of the time to show your wealth in your house and your furnishings. And so the wealthy would spare no dime to uh, bring in the best of the best. And uh, he built this brick mansion. He imported uh, antiquities from uh, Europe and England, uh, real stained glass windows, even an entire oak staircase, Uh, Some of these things uh, went back to the uh, 14th century, paintings, uh, artifacts. um, It would have cost in today's times $30 million to build. Wow. Even the the bricks uh, that went into building the manor apparently came from an old uh, English castle. 400 years old, yes. He was uh, was absolutely um, mesmerized by... Um, the wealthy of, of England and Europe and how they had built their homes, and he wanted to duplicate that. Uh, this was a 100-acre tract along a lake called American Lake, which is uh, just south of Tacoma. Tacoma is a little south of Seattle. And so he and his wife and daughters, wife Anna and daughter Anita, uh, lived this lavish lifestyle. They had parties and um, a lot of social goings-on there, uh, just really beautifully done. Uh, well, Chester Thorne died in the 1920s. Oh, it, at its peak, it had 54 rooms, um, 28 bedrooms, and 22 bathrooms. Imagine wow. having the staff to take care of that. Wouldn't want to paint that place. <laughs> so Chester died in the 20s, and um, uh, his uh, daughter, uh, his wife, uh, left the house. It was too lonely for her. Um, the house actually passed to uh, the daughter and her second husband, Anita, and um, her name at that time was Stone. So Anita Stone and her husband got it. Um, They left for a while, came back. Um, Mrs. Thorne came back and died in the house in 1954. 
And then Anita, uh, now Chester had specified in his will that the, the house was never to be subdivided. The land was not to be subdivided. This was in his will. So she, what did she do? She sells it to a developer. <laughs> Hello. What is a developer going to do? But subdivide. Immediately to court and break the will, which is what he did. He broke the will and started subdividing. This is so, not going to end well. <laughs> <laughs> Thornwood Castle. It's called a castle because it actually has a parent pet. Uh, uh, oh, I always wondered. Oh, that's that's what distinguishes a castle from a mere manor. So it does qualify yes. as an actual castle. You have okay. to have a parapet. Ah. Uh, and so, uh, I mean, for a while, people were living in it, and it really went downhill, went through a series of owners. And then in 2000, a very wealthy couple bought it and began to restore it. This is a historic landmark. And they lucked out, really lucked out, because um, at the time, ABC Disney Studios were looking for a place to film the Stephen King miniseries, Rose Red. And uh, they landed on Thornwood. And so part of the deal was that the studios would restore the um, castle to its 1911 condition in exchange for using it as uh, a setting for the miniseries. So a lot of the uh, the shots were done there at Thornwood Castle, and that was also used for the prequel that came out called The Diary of Ellen Rimbauer. Oh, yes. Okay, listen, Rosemary, we're going to take a time out. We'll come back, and we'll uh, continue to delve into Thornwood Castle in uh, Washington State. Paranormal investigator Rosemary Ellen Guiley uh, is with us. The website, visionaryliving.com. Be sure to visit the bookstore on uh, online because she's writing books uh, even as we're speaking. Uh, over well over 65 titles now, and uh, and the hits just keep on coming. Back with more, right here on the Conspiracy Show. Don't go away. Keeping an eye on the new world order. This is the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To speak with Richard, call 416-360-0740 or toll free 1-866-740-4740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You want the truth? You can handle the truth. The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio. To get the truth, call Richard now at 416-360-0740 or toll free at 1-866-740-4740. And we are back with Rosemary Ellen Guiley, our paranormal investigator. Uh, we're talking about the historic Thornwood Castle in Lakewood, Washington, um, which was constructed in the early 20th century by a very wealthy Quaker by the name of Chester Thorne. And um, uh, he died in the house. His wife died in the house. Uh, the, uh, the house was eventually sold to a developer, and sort of the, 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 the property was divided. Uh, but the house was then restored... Uh, by was it by Disney when uh, when the they were shooting a TV series there, correct? Yes, uh, the Stephen King Rose Red miniseries. Right, Rose Red. And um, did they experience any hauntings while they were in production? Do we know? They did. Uh, the film crew had uh, poltergeist phenomena happen, which was ongoing in the house when um, Wayne and Deanna Robinson, who bought the house in two thousand, when they moved in. Things uh, would happen like lights flickering. They would find light bulbs unscrewed in certain rooms all the time. 
Um, there would be sounds of footsteps and uh, Chester Thorne would be seen on the grounds and in his bedroom. And so the, the film crew did experience some of that while, uh, while they were shooting. So naturally, uh, paranormal people wanted to come and investigate. And I was fortunate enough myself uh, to actually have the place all to myself for a night. Really? And uh, wow. I, I had gone, gone to visit the home and um, uh, introduced myself to the owners and said I would like to come back and investigate. And uh, so they arranged for me to come back the following week. When I got there, I was told that I would be the only person in the house all night long. Now, uh, there aren't t- 28 bedrooms anymore. There's, uh, there's only eight uh, rooms that have been uh, turned, or excuse me, 10 rooms that have been turned into bedrooms. But there were three floors, still a huge place. Not even a staff person was going to be there. And the Robinsons don't live there. They live in a house next door. Oh, my gosh. So, How did you feel about that? Uh, well, I was pretty creeped out at first. Um, and um, they said, oh, don't worry. If anything happens, um, you know, just pick up a phone and call this number and someone will come right over. So uh, there I was wandering around uh, this uh, in- entire uh, castle uh, all night long, and things really did start to happen. Like what? I went through, uh, well, I heard footsteps, uh, I heard voices, and um, the phenomenon that with the ghostly voices is they're always somewhere else. And then when you go in the direction of the voice or to the room or, or spot where you think the voices are emanating from, the voices stop. And uh, that's uh, what happened to me. And um, Uh, They gave me, they asked me to stay in one of the bedrooms up on the third floor. And so I spent time on all the floors. I read the diaries in all the rooms. All the rooms had diaries for the guests, and many paranormal investigators had stayed there and reported things that happened, objects um, moved about, um, appliances like TVs and hair dryers that would turn on by themselves, faucets that would turn on by themselves. There was a ghost that liked to rearrange socks of the guests in one room. Uh, and um, uh, there is an apparition that comes out of a bathroom downstairs underneath the oak staircase. Uh, supposedly, it's Anna's um, first husband that she didn't get along with. There's a story that she caught him molesting their daughter and shot him in the eye that oh, didn't dear. kill him. Oh, dear. The problem with that story is that they didn't have a daughter. They had a son. Ah, Okay. <laughs> But there is the ghost of a man who comes out of the bathroom and crosses uh, the floor and disappears um, <clears throat> out one one wall of the house. And uh, I was rather unsettled when I read in one diary um, that someone got alarmed uh, one night and they called the emergency number and nobody answered. Oh, no. <laughs> But the good thing about it, Richard, was that because I was the only person there, if I heard anything, I knew it wasn't somebody else. Right. It wasn't somebody else walking around. Right. I mean, you must uh, have been doing a, something. Are you able to sleep in a situation like that, or are you up virtually all night? I was up all night, I and I, I really didn't want to sleep because I, I wanted to try and capture things. And there was quite a bit of activity on the second floor in a room called Anna's room. And this was Chester Thorne's wife's room, which looked out over the garden. It's now a bridal suite. And uh, there are two stories. One is that she would sit uh, at the window and look out on garden parties. And another story says that their daughter did that. 
Uh, it could have been both of them, but uh, a ghost of um, a woman is seen uh, on the settee at the window looking out over the garden. And I heard a lot of voices coming from that room. And every time I went to the room, the voices would stop. Um, I found drawers open, uh, the, the bureaus that were in the room. Uh, I walked into the room, you know, I inspected every room uh, to start. And I walked into the room and drawers were pulled open. There were footsteps on the stairs, which was kind of unnerving, really heavy, thudding footsteps. Oh, dear. And um, nothing bad happened, but it was really spooky, and it was ongoing. It went on all night. Were you able to, to tell what any of these voices were saying, or was it just muffled? It was muffled, and that's often the case, is it's a murmur. It's like hearing a group of people speaking in low volume so that you can't make out actual words. And uh, that's a very typical phenomenon in a lot of haunted locations. These are all residual uh, sorts of things. Um, Now, there's one painting on the staircase that people feel the eyes follow you up and down. And uh, I interviewed one woman who said that uh, she she was staying there with her daughter, and she remarked as they went up the stairs that she thought uh, the woman in the painting was rather homely. And when she went to go down the stairs, uh, she felt as though something pushed her, Ooh. and uh, she fell and sprained her ankle. Wow. Uh, so uh, it, it has uh, some demonstrable activity in it. If you sleep in Chester's room, uh, supposedly he will give you financial advice. That's um, a, a legend. Book me a room. Uh, maybe, I should have, maybe I should have slept in his room. I could have slept in any room. <laughs> That's but right. Here's the corker. Here's the corker. This was the best part. Uh, in the morning, I uh, was upstairs in the bedroom and uh, waiting for someone to come and start breakfast. And uh, while I was um, in my room, I heard these heavy footsteps come up the stairs again. And I thought, oh, somebody's here. And I heard the footsteps go down the hall away from my room to a billiard room where a pool table was set up. And I heard ball smacking around. So I thought somebody from the staff had come up and was playing a little pool before, you know, the day got started. Right. And I immediately went down to the room to go into the room to find it completely empty. Not only were there no balls in motion, every, the balls were racked on the table with a cue lying across the table. Right. And yet seconds before, I had heard balls smacking around on the table. Wow. And no one, no one was in the house uh, but a young woman who was down in the kitchen fixing breakfast, and she said that she had not gone anywhere in the house. And had she heard it too? No. Uh, when I went down to breakfast, I told her what had happened, and she just kind of nodded like, uh, oh, yes, you know, <laughs> we get that a lot. Yeah, just another night uh, in Thornwood. <laughs> another night in Thornwood. But now they're not, uh, they're not haunted anymore. Uh, and sometimes places get tired of the paranormal. Uh, they get tired of the investigators and uh, the equipment and all that, and um, they are officially unhaunted. They're only haunted in the movies, uh, and they're still a luxury uh, bed and breakfast. Uh, they cater to weddings and, and social things now, but uh, they don't want anything to do with the paranormal, and they would not respond to any of my inquiries as to why they had had a change of heart. Oh, so you're saying it's not that the house is, the house may still be haunted, it's just that they're not interested in having anyone investigated anymore. 
Well, so my question is, can a place actually become unhaunted? Because they're saying it's not haunted anymore. So what happens if you go there and you experience a ghost? Right, right. Uh, how, how do you fit that in? And another question is then, um, how much do we people contribute to hauntings? Because if you go to a place and you think it's haunted and you're hoping, expecting that maybe you'll have a spooky experience, how much are you projecting an energy that actually contributes to the manifestation of phenomena? Ah, that's an interesting question. If you deny then that nothing is going on and all of that is repressed, does whatever is there, does it go away? That's an interesting point. These are very interesting questions for uh, how and why we experience things uh, in these places and why some people don't experience things and other people do. Well, that's, uh, that's curious because, I mean, how do you feel then as a paranormal investigator if, if I mean, the, the, that raises the whole question as to whether or not you as an investigator may be producing... Uh, or affecting that which you are trying to observe? I think we are. Uh, And I think it gets down to a quantum um, physics thing, that um, there's no such thing as a completely discrete observer. As soon as you observe something, you've affected it. And the very act of investigating uh, is going to, to, I think, stir up um, whatever might be present in a place. And a lot of times I think it's dormant. Uh, and if nobody pays any attention, uh, for example, if you don't know a place is haunted, you don't believe in that sort of thing, and you don't pay give that any energy, are you going to be haunted? Uh, well, there seem to be cases where you might be, and then other cases where you're not going to be. But if we go and investigate and we want things to happen, we are projecting this uh, literally a psychokinetic um, energy into into the environment that is bound to have an answer back. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, now, you mentioned that um, that uh, for example, when you heard the pool um, the uh, pool table the the, the balls uh, smacking together, uh, and that was likely some sort of a residual phenomenon. If we're talking about residual a residual haunting in other words the ghosts really have no there's no consciousness there it's just an echo of times past uh i mean you can't cleanse that can you i mean you can't i mean that would go on forever wouldn't it i don't think it does uh, although it can go on a very long time uh my feeling about residual energy is that it has um, a battery life Ah. and at some point the battery life uh, just runs out it's um kind of a shell energy that's left over. It's gotten its uh, infusion from some sort of emotional energy and physical activity that uh, has occurred in a place. It gets imprinted, and it, it just winds down after a while. I think that's one of the reasons why some of these um, uh, famously haunted places uh, that are centuries old don't seem to be very active anymore. I think they, they just kind of got worn out. Uh, and um, I think that, uh, as, as we were just discussing, that investigation can prolong the life uh, of, of um, these uh, residual imprints. But eventually, um, 
they fade. Uh, people lose interest or there's a lot of renovation or something happens to a place where the energy changes markedly and those imprints just don't get the juice anymore. Well, Rosemary, I wish you a um, uh, safe travels to Australia and uh, we will talk next month. Well, thank you, Richard. Maybe I'll have some experiences down under. Oh, I have no doubt, but you will. Rosemary Ellen Guiley, VisionaryLiving.com. All right, that's it for us. My thanks to Ian Robertson, Albert Finzel. Back next week with a brand new program. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There is nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.